Well, amen. We are back in the book of Nehemiah today after a several month break. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Thank you to Levi and the worship team, man, so good. Uh, It's great to be here to worship with you. I want you to know that in Christ Jesus, you are loved. You are loved in Christ Jesus. So, man, praise God. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. Actually going to be reading the entire chapter uh, this morning. Nehemiah 9, 1 to 38. Let's pray before um, we get started here. Well, Lord, we just pause and uh, just recognize that you are the God of this universe. You don't work the way we would work. You don't work through human strength. You don't work through human power. You don't work through human ability. More times than not, you work through human weakness, human brokenness, and human frailty. So that it is clear (laughs) that the great one is you and not us. So Lord, we don't uh, now want to lift up strength before you or any sort of ability that we have. Father, we would just pause and acknowledge our frailty. We are like the grass here today, gone tomorrow. Father, we are very, very weak, weak people. And we look to you now for strength, for power. We look to you, Jesus, for your power. Lord Jesus, you promised, you said that it was in our weakness that your strength would be evident. So we just lift up our weakness and ask for help again this morning. We just lift up this time in the Word, Lord. If you leave us to ourselves, we won't get anything out of Nehemiah 9. So I just ask for your help, Lord, upon us. For your Holy Spirit to minister in our hearts, not by power, not by might, but by your Spirit, says the Lord. So, Father, minister to in our, in our hearts now. By your Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Back in the 1970s, during the Jimmy Carter era, many people believed that a Christian revival was sweeping across the United States. The words born again were suddenly very common. In popular speech, George Gallup Jr. reported that, that some 50 to 60 million Americans were now claiming to be born-again Christians. The secular press was discovering that these born-again Christians might be a significant political force. It, it just seemed to many people during that time, 1970s, seemed to many people that, that a revival was sweeping through the country. God was maybe doing a new thing in America. God was maybe moving in America in, in just a new and powerful way. And, and during that time, Jim Boyce, the minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he was asked on multiple occasions during that time, do you think something significant is happening in our country? Are we seeing a genuine religious revival here? And Jim Boyce responded with this. He said, whenever I have been asked that question, are we seeing a revival? My answer has always been no. And the reason I say no is quite simple. There is no national consciousness of sin. 
In fact, there is hardly any personal consciousness of sin. Very little in the churches and seemingly none at all in the world. And there has never been a genuine revival without this essential element. There has never been a genuine, God-breathed, Holy Spirit-wrought revival. Not, not, not anywhere without the widespread consciousness of sin. One of the primary elements in, in any genuine work of God in an individual or in a home or, or in a church or in a country, one of the primary elements of every true revival in human history is a deeper awareness of and a deeper sorrow for sin. That was the case in the Welsh revival in the early 1900s. That was the case in the revival under the Wesleys in the 1800s. That was the case in the revival of the Reformation back in the 1500s. That was the case under the preaching of Jonah in Nineveh way back in Bible times. One of the primary elements of every true revival is a deep, deep, deep conviction of sin. And that's what we find right here in Nehemiah chapter 9. We haven't been back in Nehemiah uh, for several months during my sabbatical, so let me kind of recap uh, where we're at here in the book of Nehemiah. Before Nehemiah was ever born, the Jewish people were, were taken into exile. The Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. They, they, they tore the wall down, burnt the temple, and they took the Jewish people into exile some 900 miles away in Babylon, which later became Persia, and the Jews remained there in exile for the next 70 years until, until um, King Cyrus of Persia w- was moved by God to write a decree that would allow the Jewish people then to return to their homeland, and the Jewish people then started returning to their homeland, which was now a mess after 70 years. And this man, Nehemiah, returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around the city. And in the first part of the book of Nehemiah, he did it. In, in just around 52 days, at the end of chapter 6, Nehemiah rallied the people to build and they did it. The wall was finished. But Nehemiah was not yet finished because God didn't send Nehemiah back to Jerusalem just to rebuild a wall. No, God sent Nehemiah back to Jerusalem also to rebuild a people. God was planning to work through Nehemiah to revive the people, to give them hope again back in that devastated land, to, 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 to reorganize them again and, and to motivate them again to, to press in to, to God. And at this point in the book of Nehemiah, this revival among the people in Jerusalem, this revival has now begun. A mass revival. And how do we know the revival has begun? A deep conviction of sin. It started back in Nehemiah chapter 8, if you remember back there. After the wall was built... The people gathered then in the city in Nehemiah chapter 8. And Ezra the scribe, he climbed up on top of a tall platform and he read the word of God, the law of God to the people from early morning to, to midday. And a deep conviction of sin began to fall upon the people. That's what the Old Testament law is designed to do. 
It's designed to convict of sin. Romans 3.20 says this. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When you hear what the Bible, what, what God requires of you in the Bible, you begin to see how much you've missed the mark and you begin to be convicted of sin. You can think you're a pretty great person on this planet until you stare into the mirror of God's law and the Bible says that's when you really begin to see who you are. You wake up in the morning, you think you look great until you look in the mirror and you realize your hair is a mess, your makeup is running from last night. That is the mirror of God's law. It shows you your sin. And back in Nehemiah 8, as Ezra read the words of the law to the people, they began to be convicted of their sin and they began to weep. But Ezra then stopped them at that time from weeping because that was a Jewish feast day. It was the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, it it, It was not a day for weeping, it was a day for rejoicing. So Ezra sent the people home actually to celebrate on that occasion. But now here in chapter 9, just a few weeks later, the people have now gathered again in the city and this is now the appropriate time for weeping for their sin. That's where we are. Let's go ahead and read it. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And now they begin to pray. Verse 6, you are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens. And with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, O God, for you are righteous. And you, O God, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. Fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you, O God, divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. 
You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, in the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. And rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you, 
that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, O God, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Amen. Let's go home. So the Jews, here they are. Just picture it. In your mind, picture it. They've all gathered again here, this massive throng of people somewhere now in Jerusalem again. And even before they arrive, God has been working in their hearts, producing in them a deep conviction of sin. Verse 1 says that they assembled here in fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their head. A very, very open and very demonstrative expression of their sorrow for their sin. And their conviction of sin then just gets deeper once they're here because verse 3 says that for the next quarter of the day or for the next three hours, they heard the book of the law again. Again, just seeing their sin in the mirror of God's law. And verse 3 then says that for the next quarter of the day or for the next three hours, they just made confession before the Lord God. You think a one and a half hour service is long <laughs> here on a Sunday morning. Listen, that was just the welcome for these people right here. This is a six hour service and almost all of it is just a service of seeing their sin. These people, six hours into this thing, man, they are feeling their sins against God in a very deep, very powerful, painful way. A very intense, God-breathed, Holy Spirit-wrought consciousness of sin. God is beginning to revive the people here by showing them their sin. You know what? We don't typically like to feel like that as human beings, this sorrow for sin. We do not want to mourn for our sin. That is the last thing that human beings want to be, want want to do. We we want everything in our lives, really, to be kind of happy clappy. Uh, We want all of our church services to be happy clappy. Uh, There are services all over the country right now on Sunday mornings that are very, very, very happy clappy all of the time. But God often works through sorrow. God works through sadness. Samuel Rutherford, an old Scottish minister, used to say that grace is found in winter. 
God will bring the winter into your life. Uh, and, and that is where the grace is found. You know, one of the most precious gifts God could ever give you as a human being is a deep sadness. A deep mourning for your own sin. Because until you truly mourn for your own sin, until you stop being happy, clappy, and start weeping over your own sin, you are not yet prepared to be comforted by God. You can't yet really taste the goodness of God. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A genuine sorrow for sin, that is a a precursor to actually experiencing the comfort of God. Until you mourn for your sin, you can't truly be comforted by God. And then you, you might not realize this, but, but there are times in your life when God does not want you to be happy clappy. There are times in your life where God wants you to be sad. He wants you to experience a very deep sorrow for your sin. God is not all happy clappy. He loves us, yes, He is always joyful, yes. He does not want us to always be happy, clappy. No, not at all. James 4.9 says this, a command from God, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And please hear me on this. Any church that would make you feel happy, clappy every Sunday morning, there is something profoundly wrong with that church. God often works through sorrow, a sadness for sin. That right there, that is one of the primary elements of every true God-breathed revival. You know, God is moving upon the people there in Nehemiah 9. He's moving powerfully upon them. And what do those people feel? They don't feel happy clappy. They feel a deep sorrow for their own sin. And they now confess their sin to God in this in this long prayer, verse 4 says that some Levites, some religious leaders, they, they positioned themselves up on some stairs. And, and one of the Levites, it, it might actually have been Ezra himself, we don't know, one of them begins to call the people to stand and begins to pray. And what we just read there right in Nehemiah 9, that is actually the longest recorded prayer in the entire Bible. It is some 33 verses long, depending on how you count. And, and listen, you know, what's, you know what's remarkable about this prayer here? Almost the entire prayer is focused on the past. You know, so many prayers today are focused on the present and on the future. God, God help me today. God, help my family tomorrow. 
almost entirely on the present and the future. But this prayer here is almost entirely in the past. This prayer is basically just a retracing of this Jewish people's history from creation all the way up to this present day right here in Nehemiah 9. If you just glance back at the prayer for a second, he's just tracing the Old Testament books. Verse 6 speaks of God creating the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1. Verses 7 and 8 are God's choosing of Abraham. That's Genesis 11, 12, 15. Verses 9 to 15 then are Israel's deliverance from Egypt. That's the book of Exodus and Leviticus. Verses 16 to 17 are the rebellion in the wilderness. That's the book of Numbers. Verses 22 to 25, the Jews enter the promised land. That's the book of Joshua. Verses 26 to 28, there are several cycles of rebellion in the promised land. That's the book of Judges. And verses 29 to 31, that is the exile of the Jews out of the promised land because of their sin. That is 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the books right before the book of Nehemiah. This is a scripture-laced prayer. It is just retracing the history of the Jewish people. And finally then, way up in verse 32, the, the person praying says, Now, therefore... <laughs> the prayer finally now looking at this present day in Nehemiah chapter 9. But all of the rest of the prayer is simply past history. That's a different kind of prayer. Man. You ever watch family movies? <laughs> Molly and I, when we were married, we received this video camera. You know, it was back in the day, so it was a pretty big video camera. Uh, but we received this video camera, and ever since we got married, we've been using that camera. We've, uh, bir- we've, we, we, we filmed the births of our children and a- as they've grown up. And, man, we, we've got all kinds of videos. We probably now have 30 to 40 DVDs of family memories, uh, Christmases and birthdays. Even, I believe, the time when one of our children found a brown substance in the diaper and um, then went on to finger paint with it all over the crib and all over the wall and the hair, the pacifier, and everything at nap time. Uh, we, we recorded that when we found the child, and we have it uh, now. If you've never experienced that as a, pr- a parent, I pray that you do, uh, because there is nothing on this earth that will make you long for heaven like that right there. <laughs> there is something that's just wrong with that right there. We, we have all now these, these incredible videos, these family memories, and we'll occasionally just pop one of those DVDs in the player, and we'll just sit and we'll, we'll, we'll look back on our family history. And this prayer right here in Nehemiah chapter 9, whoever's praying here, one of the Levites or Ezra, is like this guy just popped a DVD into the player, and all of these people now, for the next 25 to 33 verses or so, they are just looking back at their family history. It is a backward-focused prayer. When was the last time you prayed a backward-focused prayer? Not just present and future, but looking to the past. 
And all I want to do, if we looked at detail, in detail at this prayer, we would be here till next Sunday. So all I want to do, I want to point out three very simple themes that we can find all the way through this prayer here. Whoever this was who was standing up and praying, man, this guy was just hammering home these three major themes here. And the first major theme we can see clearly here is the theme of faithfulness. The faithfulness of God. This backward-focused prayer, even though it traces the history of the Jewish people, it's not ultimately about the Jewish people. It's ultimately about God. It's a backward-focused prayer, but it is a very Godward-focused prayer. Do you know, if you go through Nehemiah 9 carefully, and I challenge you to do this later this week, and you trace the use of the second-person personal pronoun, you, your, yours, referring to God, you, God, your, God, all this stuff, if you trace the use of that, you will find it some 85 times. In this prayer, you God, you God, you God, you God, you God, you God, you God. It's all the way through this this prayer. If you read the King James, that's 85 these thou's and thines. <laughs> Looking at God. And man, one thing we see clearly in this prayer is the faithfulness of of God, that God all the way from creation up to this present day in Nehemiah 9, God has been faithful to the Jewish people. God has been faithful to fulfill his promises to them. You can look at verse 8, for example. We're going to just run through a couple parts in here. You can see God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises to them. Look at verse 8. You, O oh God, you found Abraham's heart faithful before you. And made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, and so on. And you, O oh God, you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. God had been faithful to fulfill his promises to the Jews. God had also been faithful to, to provide for them, to protect them, to, to preserve them. If you look, for example, at verse 12, God's faithfulness in providing and protecting and preserving. By a pillar of cloud, O oh God, you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. Or verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven, O oh God, for their hunger. And brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. Or, or verse 21, 40 years, O oh God, you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. God, you have fulfilled your promises to our people. God, you have provided for us. God, you have protected us. You have preserved us. God, you have been so faithful to us. When was the last time that you just paused in prayer and you looked backward. Not just praying present and future, but you looked back. 
and you took some time to identify God's goodness in your life, His faithfulness, and you just thanked Him for it. God, you were faithful to me when I was a child. You were faithful to me when I was in an accident. You were faithful to me in bringing a spouse to me. You have been so faithful to me. Do you realize that if we did that more often, we would grumble a lot less? We grumble because we lose sight of how good God has been to us. And this writer, this this prayer, one of the things he does is he just looks back and he just points to God and says, You, God, you have been faithful to us. That's one theme here. It's just the faithfulness of God. A second theme you can just see so clearly in here, faithlessness. First faithfulness and now faithlessness. The faithlessness or the sin of these people. You know, even though God, He'd been so faithful to to these people, they recognized that they had been faithless in response to Him. Very unfaithful at times in response. Look at the end of verse 15. Go ahead and look back down if you will. They just confess it here. You told our ancestors, O God, to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey. Or look at verse 26. After God brought them into the land, even though they'd sinned, Nevertheless, they were disobedient again and rebelled against you, O God, cast your law behind their backs, killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Or the middle of verse 29, they acted presumptuously, did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. In verse 30, many years you bore with them, God, and you warned our ancestors by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands and our ancestors. Ancestors, oh God, were then dragged into exile. They see it. They see their faithlessness against God. And, and listen, these people here, they didn't just see the sin of their ancestors. No, they saw their own sin here. Verse 2 and 3 says they arrived in fasting and sackcloth, dirt on their heads, confessing their sins and the sins, the iniquities of their fathers. And listen, these people standing here, just picture them standing here, just confessing to God. These people here, they know that they are still suffering at this time because of their own sin. They know it. You know, even though this wall has now been built around Jerusalem, these people are a long way from actually thriving. They're not. They're still in a very difficult season here. They are surrounded by enemies on every side. They are still ruled by Persia, controlled by Persia. They're paying taxes to Persia. They have to watch their P's and Q's and everything they do, or Persia will come in and drag them back into exile again. These people are not in a good place, a very difficult time. And these people here know that it's because of their sin and and not just their ancestors' sin. If you look at verse 36 at what they say here. 
They say, behold, O God, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we are in great distress. Because of our sin. We look at the end of verse 33. This just sums up the two themes I've just mentioned perfectly. The end of 33. For you God. You have dealt faithfully with us. But we have acted wickedly. Faithlessness. Unfaithful to God. Who had been so good to them. Not just blaming their ancestors for their troubles, but actually owning their own personal sin. It's very very refreshing. I mean, many people today want to just blame other people for their troubles. Blame ancestors, maybe. Blame parents. Blame grandparents. And yeah, parents and grandparents might have done some horrible things to us. But listen, at some point in your life, You have to stop only blaming the people around you. And you have to start owning your own sin openly before God and before other people. Those are the first two themes in this prayer. Faithfulness, but then faithlessness. And the third and final theme here is mercy. Incredible mercy from God for a very sinful people. You know, man, if you take your time and you read through this prayer, Nehemiah 9, there is one word that rings out so loud and clear in here. And it is the word mercy. A beautiful word, man. Oh my goodness. And it is all over this prayer. If you look at the middle of verse 17, when the Jews rebelled in the wilderness, here they say, our ancestors, oh God, they stiffened their neck, appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, And abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. That's pulled right out of Exodus chapter 34. You can find that statement all over the Old Testament. God, you are a merciful God. You are gracious. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are merciful. Look at verse 19. You, O God, in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Or the middle of verse 27. In the cycles of judgment in Judges. According to your great mercies, O God, you gave them saviors who saved them. Or the end of verse 28, many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And two final times, I'll ask you to look back down, verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and you are a merciful God. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Mercy, mercy, mercy. 
mercy, mercy. God, you have been merciful to us. We have been faithless. You were faithful to us. We've been faithless so many times. But we're still here. We're still here. And we're still in our land, even though we're enslaved and we're in great distress. We're still alive and kicking. And we know, God, that there's one and only one reason why we are still alive and still here. Mercy. It's your mercy upon upon sinful people. You know, and there's something very precious that's kind of hidden in that prayer there. You might not have seen it at first glance. Three different times, the author of the prayer, he connects the word mercy to a particular phrase. It's in verses 17, 19, and 31. It goes something like this. Because of your great mercy, O God, you did not forsake us. The Hebrew word there is a very precious word. It's the word abandon. And it could be read like this. Because of your great mercy, O God, you did not abandon us. We deserve to be, O God, abandoned countless times by you. But in your great mercies, you have not done it. Sheer, unadulterated, undeserved mercy for sinners. And you know what? These people here, as they now just humble themselves before God, in their enslaved state of distress, as they confess their sins to God, do you know what these people are looking for from God? Just a little bit more mercy. Just a little bit more mercy. Do you know that if you read through this entire prayer, the longest one in the entire Bible, some 33 verses, you only find one petition. They only ask God for one thing. So contrary to most of the prayers prayed today, where it's just asking, 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 give me, give me, give me. It's 33 verses where they don't ask for a thing. And the only thing they ask for, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. That's it. That's it. Please look on our hardship now, God. Please look on it and give us, give us mercy. You didn't abandon us in the past. And our simple prayer now, oh God, is that you would not abandon us now. You look on our hardship and you'd help us now, Lord God. That's all we ask from you, nothing more. You would simply help us. Mercy, God. Mercy. 
It's a confession of sin, and it's a plea for mercy. And there it is, man. It's a backward-focused prayer, Godward-focused prayer, three simple themes, faithfulness, faithlessness, mercy. And what do we do with this prayer today? Here's what I'd encourage you to do. Just step right into that prayer. Because the three themes that we just covered there, those are your themes. Faithfulness. God has been so faithful to you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what's happened to you in your life. God has been so faithful to you. He created you. He gave you a body. He gave you clothes. He put a roof over your head. He protected you. He guided you. He watched over you. He caused His rain and His Son both to to fall on you. God has been faithful to you. But you have been faithless before God. All of us sinned against God in countless ways, turned against this God who was so faithful to us, chose not to worship Him as God, but chose to worship ourselves. We've turned against Him in our faithlessness in our lives. Man, the words of that prayer, those words are yours. They are mine. Words like disobedient and rebellious and great blasphemies, those are ours. If you haven't seen your sin yet, I'd encourage you to spend a little time in God's law in the first part of the Bible. Just stare into the mirror of God's law and you should begin to see the ways you've missed the mark. Faithfulness, faithlessness. And you know where that leaves all of us then? We are all in a desperate need for mercy. All of us. You may not like it when I say this, but you are a great sinner. And you are in great need of mercy. God doesn't owe you anything good. You are simply in need of His mercy at this point in your life. In need of His mercy. And I would encourage you, own your sin and turn to God and cry out for mercy. Cry out to God for mercy, mercy, mercy. Here's the good news. That right there is a prayer that God loves to answer. He loves to pour out mercy on sinners who cry out to Him. He loves to do it. And God can do it. You know why? Jesus. Because Jesus took our punishment on the cross in order that every sinner who turns to Christ and clings to Him and cries out to God for mercy might then receive mercy. If you just cry out to Christ with simple childlike faith, God pours out His tender mercies upon you. You know what God then says to you? I will never abandon you. I will never, ever, ever abandon you. Because God abandoned His own Son on the cross in your place. And if you cling to Jesus in faith, God says, mercy on you. I will never abandon you. Ever. (laughs) But man, don't just cry out for mercy once. Keep crying out for mercy every day of your life because you need mercy today. 
You may not need salvation mercy today, but you still need mercy from God. God's mercies are new every single morning because we need mercy every single morning. Just ask Him for mercy. When you're hurting, you're in pain, your family's struggling, ask Him for mercy. When you don't know what to do, when you're confused, when you're distraught, ask Him for mercy. Ask Him for mercy. Ask Him for mercy. There is a prayer that Christians have prayed for hundreds of years. A very simple prayer. Many Christians now just call it the Jesus prayer. It's taken from the stories of blind Bartimaeus in the Bible. uh, The story of the tax collector in Luke 18. Here's a simple Jesus prayer for you. You ready? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Christians have prayed that prayer for hundreds and hundreds of years. I started praying it two years ago. I've just come through one of the hardest years of my entire life. There were days in the last couple of years where all I could do was walk or sit and just say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And listen to me, if you will hold yourself before God and you will simply look to him for mercy and you will look through the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy, God will joyfully pour out his mercy upon you. He will do it. And he will never, ever, ever abandon you. Step into the prayer. See his faithfulness in your life. See your faithlessness. Stop being happy and clappy for a few minutes. See your faithlessness. Own it. Stop blaming other people. Confess it to God. And then just get on your knees and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God will lavish his mercy upon you mercifully. Lavish his mercy upon you generously. May God help us because that's the beginning of a revival right there. You see your sin and you turn to God for mercy and God begins to revive you. May God help us to do it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are a merciful God, ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, full of steadfast love, abounding in it because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That now because of Christ taking our punishment, taking our abandonment, we can turn to you and just acknowledge our sin, ask you for mercy, and you joyfully pour it out upon us. Lord, will will you cause that prayer to be on our lips regularly? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Lord, through that conviction of sin and the outpouring of your mercy, may you revive us as individuals and our homes and our church and our country and around the world. Conviction of sin and mercy. Revive us, O God, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.